0: unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. Sometimes it only takes one person's dogged determination to find the truth and solve a decades-old case. On December 9th, 1932, a Chicago police officer was killed inside of a speakeasy. And though two men spent over a decade behind bars for the crime, it was the dogged pursual of one of their mothers that placed the story in the hands of two reporters who were determined to know the truth. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On October 10, 1944, a classified advertisement appeared in the Chicago Times that would alter the course of many people's lives. The author of the ad pleaded with readers and offered a quote $5,000 reward for killers of Officer Lundy on December 9, 1932, giving a phone number to call with any information. City editor Karen Walsh found out about the ad and quickly put one of her seasoned reporters, James McGuire, on the story in the hopes that it would turn out to be a newsworthy piece. They had no clue that the ad and their involvement would open up an entire case, find justice for those who thought there would never be any, and alter the course of an entire investigation. Now, let's go back to December 9th, 1932. That's the day that 57-year-old Chicago police officer William D. Lundy was killed while interfering with a robbery at a local speakeasy on South Ashland Avenue. As the story goes, Officer Lundy, the married father of three, entered a delicatessen shop owned by Vera Walouche at 4312 South Ashland to warm up after a tour of traffic duty in the frigid winter air. It's unclear if Officer Lundy knew or not, but in a time where Prohibition was still alive and well, Miss Vera's store doubled as a backroom bar fronted by her small grocery store, which is where a man named John Zagata, after putting some more coal in the stove, was going for a drink when he noticed two men standing in the doorway leading from the store. While he wasn't able to get a good look at their faces, a flash of metal told him that they were armed and ready for a fight. While it's unclear when Vera saw the intruders at some point running off and hiding in a closet, Officer Lundy was quick to react and as soon as the strangers finished a sentence, this is a stickup, the 27-year veteran spun around and drew his own weapon. There was the sound of gunfire and when the smoke cleared, it was William Lundy who was lying on the floor with seven bullets in his body. The killers fled out of the door and into a car driven by a third stranger they left empty-handed. Because he was the eighth policeman to be slain that year, Officer Lundy's colleagues responded with as much gusto and force as they could muster for their fallen friend, pulling in about a half a dozen suspects almost immediately who all had to be let go. Now, this is where the story gets interesting. Despite the fact the 1944 ad alludes to William Lundy's death being a cold case, the murder was, in the eyes of the courts, solved and had a clear verdict. Based almost solely on the testimony of eyewitness Vera Waluš, 24-year-old Joseph Majek, and 25-year-old Theodor Marsinkiewicz, two Polish-American men, were not only arrested and charged with William's murder, but found guilty in the Cook County Superior Court and convicted for the murder, despite the fact that they both had a clear alibi. Alibis that were corroborated by a number of witnesses. When James McGuire called the number on the ad, a woman named Tilly answered the phone. She was Joseph's mother, and she was 100% convinced that her son was not responsible for the murder that kept him behind bars. She explained to the reporter that she spent years scrubbing the floors at the Commonwealth Edison Company to afford the reward. When she spoke with James, she explained that two relatives and a delivery man placed her son at home at the time of the murder, and for others placed Theodore at his home at the precise time the crime took place, and a little while later, at a neighborhood saloon. Meaning, unless nine different people were lying, there was no possible way that Joseph and Theodore committed the robbery gone wrong. Like so many reporters of the era, James did not write his investigative stories himself, So he collected all of Tilly's information and left it to a rewrite bank to combine all of the details into a cohesive story for the next edition of the paper. One of those rewrite men was John J. McFall, who walked into the newsroom early the morning of the 10th and was told by Karen Walsh to look into James's, quote, Nice little human interest story. The first indicator that something was amiss in their story was the fact that, despite killing a police officer, Joseph and Theodore had not been sentenced to death for their crime. They were instead sentenced to 99 years each, a fact that led both James McGuire and John McFall to suspect the judge in the case had some concerns about their convictions. With James McGuire's suspicion nagging at the back of his head after the piece appeared in the Times, John decided to read the 30-page statement of facts written by Joseph Majdek, while he sat in prison. When he did so, he noticed a small section in which Joseph asserted that, after the jury found him guilty, the trial judge, a man named Charles P. Malthrop, took him into his chambers and promised him a new trial, asserting this had been a massive miscarriage of justice. Unfortunately, the judge died less than two years later before he could make good on his promise. He also claimed that he had witnessed a conversation in which James Zagata, the man who put the coal in Vera's stove that day, admitted that the wrong men had been convicted of the crimes. So James decided to try and track down James Zagata. And when he did, he fully cooperated not only the statements made by Joseph Majek, but the fact that Judge Malthrop called him into his chambers to ask about the identification and privately promised a retrial a promise that was never fulfilled due to not just the judge's death, but a threat to ruin his career by the prosecution. James went on to claim that, when presented with the police lineup that included Joseph Mazjek, he was unable to positively identify him and restated this fact during the actual trial. That, for some reason, didn't seem to matter to the police or to the jury. He claimed that neither men looked anything like the shadowed figures he saw that day in Vera's store and was certain the true killers were much taller than the men convicted. All of this was enough to really send James McGuire and John McFall into a full-blown investigation mode. When they did, they found out that Vera Walouche, whose testimony and sequence of events were never really clear and was the sole reason the pair were convicted, initially did not recognize either men during the lineup, it was only after she was threatened with arrest for her illegal booze that she suddenly pointed the finger at Joseph and Theodore. According to their research, a pressured Vera claimed that the only thing she knew about the killer was that one of them went by the name Ted. Police pretty quickly landed on the local man, Theodore Marcinkiewicz, but had no idea where he was. About two weeks later, a bootlegger was arrested and, in exchange for not being charged, told the police that Theodore was staying with the Majek family. They raided the home on December 22nd and arrested Joseph Majek. Vera made her pressured identification on the 23rd, and the police wrote a false report claiming he was arrested that day and immediately identified. Theodore surrendered exactly a month later. This was all confirmed when James McGuire recovered the original arrest report. The reporter's theory was that the pressure to solve a cop killing, as well as the ever-increasing murder rate of Prohibition-era Chicago, and a demand from the then-mayor Anton Cermak to start a, quote, war on crime before it ruined their tourism rates, led to false witness statements and two wrongful convictions. They worked to get that new trial that Judge Malthrop had promised, but for one reason or another, the state's attorney's office refused to reopen the case. So the Times hired a lawyer of their own who sought a full pardon for just Joseph Majek on the grounds that he had been framed. The lawyers claimed the original attorney performed incompetently and that the key witnesses in the case were of dubious credibility. And even then, none of the statements related to Joseph. On August 15th, 1945, Governor Dwight Green granted a full pardon based on the innocence of Joseph Majek. However, Theodore, who no one seemed to be fighting for, remained behind bars. Shortly before leaving office in 1949, Governor Green offered to reduce Theodore's sentence to 75 years, which allowed for parole in 1958. Theodore, knowing he was an innocent man, turned down this offer. He was legally exonerated through a state habeas corpus proceeding the following year, and both men were compensated financially for their wrongful conviction. While the dogged pursuit for justice cleared the names of two wrongfully convicted men who were able to live the rest of their lives freely, the real killers have never been identified. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on December 10th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.